Chapter Five Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne. GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Five. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? Merchant of Venice Oswald, returning, whispered into the ear of his master, "'It is a Jew who calls himself Isaac of York. Is it fit I should marshal him into the hall?' "'Let Gert do thine office, Oswald,' said Wamba, with his usual effrontery. "'The swineherd will be a fit usher to the Jew.' "'Saint Mary,' said the abbot, crossing himself, "'an unbelieving Jew, and admitted into this presence?' dog jew echoed the templar to approach a defender of the holy sepulchre by my faith said wamba it would seem the templars love the jews inheritance better than they do their company peace my worthy guests said cedric my hospitality must not be bounded by your dislikes if heaven bore with the whole nation of stiff-necked unbelievers for more years than a layman can number we may endure the presence of one Jew for a few hours. But I constrain no man to converse or to feed with him. Let him have a board and a morsel apart, unless, he said smiling, these turbaned strangers will admit his society. Sir Franklin, answered the Templar, my Saracen slaves are true Muslims, and scorn as much as any Christian to hold intercourse with a Jew. Now, in faith, said Wamba, I cannot see that the worshippers of Mahound and Termagant have so greatly the advantage over the people once chosen of heaven. He shall sit with thee, Wamba, said Cedric. The fool and the knave will be well met. The fool, answered Wamba, raising the relics of a gammon of bacon, will take care to erect a bulwark against the knave. Hush, said Cedric, for here he comes. Introduced with little ceremony, and advancing with fear and hesitation, and many a bow of deep humility, a tall, thin, old man, who, however, had lost by the habit of stooping much of his actual height, approached the lower end of the board. His features, keen and regular, with an aquiline nose and grey hair and beard, would have been considered as handsome had they not been the marks of a physiognomy peculiar to a race, which, during those dark ages, was alike detested by the credulous and prejudiced vulgar, and persecuted by the greedy and rapacious nobility, and who, perhaps owing to that very hatred and persecution, had adopted a national character in which there was much, to say the least, mean and unamiable. The Jew's dress, which appeared to have suffered considerably from the storm, was a plain russet cloak, 
of many folds, covering a dark purple tunic. He had large boots lined with fur, and a belt around his waist, which sustained a small knife, together with a case for writing materials, but no weapon. He wore a high square yellow cap of a peculiar fashion, assigned to his nation to distinguish them from Christians, and which he doffed with great humility at the door of the hall. The reception of this person in the hall of Cedric the Saxon was such as might have satisfied the most prejudiced enemy of the tribes of Israel. Cedric himself coldly nodded in answer to the Jew's repeated salutations, and signed him to take the place at the lower end of the table, where, however, no one offered to make room for him. On the contrary, as he passed along the file, casting a timid, supplicating glance, and turning towards each of those who occupied the lower end of the board, the Saxon domestics squared their shoulders, and continued to devour their supper with great perseverance, paying not the least attention to the wants of the new guest. The attendants of the abbot crossed themselves with looks of pious horror, and the very heathen Saracens, as Isaac drew near them, curled up their whiskers with indignation, and laid their hands on their poniards, as if ready to rid themselves by the most desperate means of the apprehended contamination of his nearer approach. Probably the same motives which induced Cedric to open his hall to this son of a rejected people would have made him insist on his attendants receiving Isaac with more courtesy. But the abbot had at this moment engaged him in a most interesting discussion on the breed and character of his favourite hounds, which he would not have interrupted for matters of much greater importance than that of a Jew going to bed supperless. While Isaac thus stood an outcast in the present society, like his people among the nations looking in vain for welcome or resting-place, the pilgrim who sat by the chimney took compassion upon him, and resigned his seat, saying briefly, "'Old man, my garments are dried, my hunger is appeased, thou art both wet and fasting.' So saying, he gathered together and brought to a flame the decaying brands which lay scattered on the ample hearth, took from the larger board a mess of pottage and seethed kid, and placed it upon the small table at which he had himself supped, and, without waiting the Jew's thanks, went to the other side of the hall, whether from unwillingness to hold more close communication with the object of his benevolence, or from a wish to draw near to the upper end of the table, seemed uncertain. Had there been painters in those days capable to execute such a subject, the Jew, as he bent his withered form and expanded his chilled and trembling hands over the fire, would have formed no bad emblematical personification of the winter season. Having dispelled the cold, he turned eagerly to the smoking mess which was placed before him, and ate with a haste and an apparent relish that seemed to betoken long abstinence from food. Meanwhile, the abbot and Cedric continued their discourse upon hunting. The lady Rowena seemed engaged in conversation with one of her attendant females, and the haughty Templar, whose eye seemed to wander from the Jew to the Saxon beauty, resolved in his mind thoughts which appeared deeply to interest him. "'I marvel, worthy Cedric,' said the abbot, as their discourse proceeded, that great as your predilection is for your own manly language, 
you do not receive the Norman French into your favour, so far at least as the mystery of woodcraft and hunting is concerned. Surely no tongue is so rich in the various phrases which the field sports demand, or furnishes means to the experienced woodman so well to express his jovial art. Good faithful Aymer, said the Saxon, be it known to you, I care not for those oversea refinements, without which I can well enough take my pleasure in the woods. I can wind my horn, though I call not the blast either a richeat or a mort. I can cheer my dogs on the prey, and I can flay and quarter the animal when it is brought down, without using the new-fangled jargon of curé, arbor, nombre, and all the babble of the fabulous Sir Tristram. The French, said the Templar, raising his voice with the presumptuousness and authoritative tone which he used upon all occasions, is not only the natural language of the chase, but that of love and of war, in which ladies should be won and enemies defied. "'Pledge me in a cup of wine, Sir Templar,' said Cedric, "'and fill another to the abbot, while I look back some thirty years to tell you another tale. As Cedric the Saxon then was, his plain English tale needed no garnish from French troubadours when it was told in the ear of beauty, and the field of Northallerton upon the day of the holy standard could tell whether the Saxon war-cry was not heard as far within the ranks of the Scottish hosts as the cri de guerre of the boldest Norman baron, to the memory of the brave who fought there. Pledge me, my guests. He drank deep, and went on with increasing warmth. Ay, that was a day of cleaving of shields, when a hundred banners were bent forward over the heads of the valiant, and blood flowed round like water, and death was held better than flight. A Saxon bard had called it a feast of the swords, a gathering of the eagles to the prey, the clashing of bills upon shield and helmet, the shouting of battle more joyful than the clamour of a bridle. But our bards are no more, he said. Our deeds are lost in those of another race. Our language, our very name, is hastening to decay, and none mourns for it save one solitary old man. Cupbearer, nay, fill the goblets. To the strong in arms, Sir Templar, be their race or language what it will, who now bear them best in Palestine among the champions of the cross. It becomes not one wearing this badge to answer, said Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert, yet to whom, besides the sworn champions of the Holy Sepulchre, can the palm be assigned among the champions of the cross? To the knights hospitallers, said the abbot, I have a brother of their order. I impeach not their fame, said the Templar, nevertheless. I think, friend Cedric— said Wamba, interfering, that had Richard of the Lion's Heart been wise enough to have taken a fool's advice, he might have stayed at home with his merry Englishmen, and left the recovery of Jerusalem to those same knights who had most to do with the loss of it. Were there, then, none in the English army? said the Lady Rowena, whose names are worthy to be mentioned with the knights of the Temple and of St. John? Forgive me, lady, replied de Bois-Gilbert. The English monarch did indeed bring to Palestine a host of gallant warriors, 
second only to those whose breasts have been the unceasing bulwark of that blessed land. Second to none, said the pilgrim, who had stood near enough to hear, and had listened to this conversation with marked impatience. All turned toward this spot from whence this unexpected asseveration was heard. I say, repeated the pilgrim in a firm and strong voice, that the English chivalry were second to none who ever drew sword in defence of the Holy Land. I say besides, for I saw it, that King Richard himself and five of his knights held a tournament after the taking of St. John d'Acre, as challengers against all comers. I say that, on that day, each knight ran three courses, and cast to the ground three antagonists. I add, that seven of these assailants were knights of the temple, and Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert well knows the truth of what I tell you. It is impossible for language to describe the bitter scowl of rage which rendered yet darker the swarthy countenance of the Templar. In the extremity of his resentment and confusion, his quivering fingers gripped toward the handle of his sword, and perhaps only withdrew from the consciousness that no act of violence could be safely executed in that place and presence. Cedric, whose feelings were all of a right onward and simple kind, and were seldom occupied by more than one subject at once, omitted in the joyous glee with which he heard of the glory of his countrymen, to remark the angry confusion of his guest. "'I would give thee this golden bracelet, pilgrim,' he said. "'Couldst thou tell me the names of those knights who upheld so gallantly the renown of merry England?' "'That I will do blithely,' replied the pilgrim, and without guerdon. My oath for a time prohibits me from touching gold. "'I will wear the bracelet for you, if you will, friend Palmer,' said Wamba. "'The first in honour as in arms, in renown as in place,' said the pilgrim, "'was the brave Richard, King of England.' "'I forgive him,' said Cedric. "'I forgive him his descent from the tyrant Duke William.' The Earl of Leicester was the second, continued the pilgrim. Sir Thomas Moulton of Gilsland was the third. Of Saxon descent, he at least, said Cedric with exultation. Sir Fulk, Dwally the fourth, proceeded the pilgrim. Saxon also, at least by the mother's side, continued Cedric, who listened with the utmost eagerness and forgot, in part at least, his hatred to the Normans in the common triumph of the King of England and his islanders. "'And who was the fifth? he demanded. "'The fifth was Sir Edwin Turnham.' "'Genuine Saxon, by the soul of Hengist!' shouted Cedric. "'And the sixth! he continued with eagerness. "'How name you the sixth? "'The sixth! answered the palmer, after a pause, in which he seemed to recollect himself, was a young knight of lesser renown and lower rank, assumed into that honourable company less to aid their enterprise than to make up their number. His name dwells not in my memory. "'Sir Palmer,' said Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert, scornfully, 
this assumed forgetfulness, after so much has been remembered, comes too late to serve your purpose. I will myself tell the name of the knight, before whose lance fortune and my horse's fault occasioned my falling. It was the knight of Ivanhoe. Nor was there one of the six that, for his years, had more renown in arms. Yet this I will say, and loudly, that were he in England, and durst repeat, in this week's tournament, the challenge of St. Jean d'Acre, I, mounted and armed as I now am, would give him every advantage of weapons, and abide the result. "'Your challenge would soon be answered,' replied the palmer, "'were your antagonists near you. As the matter is, disturb not the peaceful hall with vaunts of the issue of a conflict, which you well know cannot take place.' If Ivanhoe ever returns from Palestine, I will be his surety that he meets you. A goodly security, said the Knight Templar, and what do you prefer as pledge? This reliquary, said the palmer, taking a small ivory box from his bosom and crossing himself, containing a portion of the true cross brought from the monastery of Mount Carmel. The prior of Jorvaux crossed himself and repeated a paternoster, in which all devoutly joined, excepting the Jew, the Mahomedans, and the Templar, the latter of whom, without veiling his bonnet, or testifying any reverence for the alleged sanctity of the relic, took from his neck a gold chain, which he flung on the board, saying, Let prior Aymer hold my pledge and that of this nameless vagrant, in token that, when the knight of Ivanhoe comes within the four seas of Britain, he underlies the challenge of Brian de Bois-Gilbert, which, if he answer not, I will proclaim him as a coward on the walls of every temple court in Europe. "'It will not need,' said the Lady Rowena, breaking silence. "'My voice shall be heard, if no other in this hall is raised in behalf of the absent Ivanhoe. I affirm he will meet fairly every honourable challenge.' Could my weak warrant add security to the inestimable pledge of this holy pilgrim, I would pledge name and fame that Ivanhoe gives this proud knight the meeting he desires. A crowd of conflicting emotions seemed to have occupied Cedric, and kept him silent during this discussion. Gratified pride, resentment, embarrassment, chased each other over his broad and open brow, like the shadow of clouds drifting over a harvest-field, while his attendants, on whom the name of the sixth knight seemed to produce an effect almost electrical, hung in suspense upon their master's looks. But when Rowena spoke, the sound of her voice seemed to startle him from his silence. "'Lady,' said Cedric, "'this beseems not. Were further pledge necessary, I myself—' Offended, and justly offended, as I am, would yet gauge my honour for the honour of Ivanhoe. But the wager of battle is complete, even according to the fantastic fashions of Norman chivalry. Is it not, Father Aymer? It is, replied the prior, and the blessed relic and rich chain will I bestow safely in the treasury of our convent, until the decision of this warlike challenge. Having thus spoken, he crossed himself again and again, and after many genuflections and muttered prayers, he delivered the reliquary to Brother Ambrose, his attendant monk, while he himself, swept up with less ceremony, 
but perhaps with no less internal satisfaction, the golden chain, and bestowed it in a pouch lined with perfumed leather, which opened under his arm. "'And now, Sir Cedric,' he said, "'my ears are chiming vespers with the strength of your good wine. Permit us another pledge to the welfare of the Lady Rowena, and indulge us with liberty to pass to our repose.' "'By the road of the Bromholm,' said the Saxon, "'you do but small credit to your fame, Sir Prior. "'Report speaks you a bonny monk "'that would hear the matin chime ere he quitted his bowl. "'And old as I am, I feared to have shame in encountering you. "'But by my faith, a Saxon boy of twelve in my time "'would not so soon have relinquished his goblet.' The prior had his own reasons, however, for persevering in the course of temperance which he had adopted. He was not only a professional peacemaker, but from practice a hater of all feuds and brawls. It was not altogether from a love to his neighbour or to himself, or from a mixture of both. On the present occasion he had an instinctive apprehension of the fiery temper of the Saxon, and saw the danger that the reckless and presumptuous spirit, of which his companion had already given so many proofs, might at length produce some disagreeable explosion. He therefore gently insinuated the incapacity of the native of any other country to engage in the genial conflict of the bowl with the hardy and strong-headed Saxons. Something he mentioned, but slightly, about his own holy character, and ended by pressing his proposal to depart to repose. The grace-cup was accordingly served round, and the guests, after making deep obeisance to their landlord and to the Lady Rowena, arose and mingled in the hall, while the heads of the family, separated by doors, retired with their attendants. "'Unbelieving dog!' said the Templar to Isaac the Jew, as he passed him in the throng. "'Dost thou bend thy course to the tournament?' "'I do so propose,' replied Isaac, bowing in all humility, "'if it please your reverend valour.' "'Aye,' said the knight, "'to gnaw the bowels of our nobles with usury, "'and to gull women and boys with gods and toys. "'I warrant thee store of shekels in thy Jewish scrip. "'Not a shekel, not a silver penny, not a halfling, so help me the God of Abraham,' said the Jew, clasping his hands. "'I go but to seek the assistance of some brethren of my tribe, to aid me to pay the fine which the exchequer of the Jews has imposed upon me. Father Jacob, be my speed. I am an impoverished wretch. The very gabardine I wear is borrowed from Reuben of Tadcaster.' The Templar smiled sourly, as he replied, "'Beshrew thee for a false-hearted liar!' And passing onward, as if disdaining farther conference, he communed with his Moslem slaves in a language unknown to the bystanders. The poor Israelite seemed so staggered by the address of the military monk that the Templar had passed on to the extremity of the hall ere he raised his head from the humble posture which he had assumed, so far as to be sensible of his departure." and when he did look around, it was with the astonished air of one at whose feet a thunderbolt has just burst, and who hears still the astounding report ringing in his ears. The Templar and Prior were shortly after marshalled to their sleeping apartments by the steward and the cupbearer, 
each attended by two torch-bearers, and two servants carrying refreshments, while servants of inferior condition indicated to their retinue, and to the other guests their respective places of repose. End of chapter 5